Melt presents The Struggle is Real, where champions from the business of sports and entertainment today lay the foundation for the future changemakers of tomorrow. Welcome to The Struggle is Real, presented by Melt. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Over the course of this series, we've spoken to countless people who've achieved great levels of success. And while some successful people find it useful to analyze how they got to that point, others simply put their head down and keep going, even when the finish line is already in the rearview mirror. On today's show, we'll hear from two people on opposite sides of this coin, and serial entrepreneur John Casimus and recent TED Talk alumnus Catherine Leonard-Reed. Let's begin with the founder of Zoe's Kitchen. John Casmus has been an entrepreneur ever since he can remember, and it seems that he only knows how to live and work at one speed. After dominating the fast casual restaurant space and making a great deal of money, he's turned his attention to the wholesaling business. Melt's Director of Public Relations and Community Affairs, Mark Carmen, and I spoke to John about his relentless drive and latest venture, and he began by taking us back to the dawn of his entrepreneurial spirit. I guess I really started when I was a child. I loved the ability to go out and take a lawnmower going down the street and make money when I needed needed some money. But growing up, when I was in college, I, my first business that I actually ran, I was in school, and it was a program one summer. And I basically sold fire extinguishers through a, a demonstration appointment-based system where I'd set appointments to go do demonstrations and sell people fire extinguishers for their home. And it was amazing. I was, this was 1987 and I was making a thousand dollars a week in profit. And I did it for five weeks during the summer, went back to school with, you know, for me at that time, $5,000 in cash in my hand. And, uh, at that point in time, I knew that if I worked really hard, I had the ability to sell and I could go out there and work when I wanted to work and, and control my own destiny. And at that point right there, I knew for a fact that I was always going to work for myself. Zoe's Kitchen, great company that you started. You've started a number of different companies, a lot of them in the food business. Now you're in a totally different genre of business entrepreneurship. Tell us a little bit about your new uh, business enterprise. It's called Mike's Merchandise, and it's a we licensed the name from uh, Mike Jones in Gunnersville, Alabama, who's been in this business for 30 years. And, and essentially what we are, we're in the liquidation business. And so we we get merchandise through multiple different channels and we sell it two ways. One, um, we, we do e-commerce and we sell unique items that would not sell in a retail um, setting, such as a car part, a random car part, or a part for an air conditioner, um, something really unique and different like that. A shelf, for example, for a refrigerator for a specific model, that gets sold on online. And then at the store level, we have a 26,000 square foot brick and mortar uh, location that would be equivalent of walking into a Lowe's meets a Walmart, meets a Sam's Warehouse, meets a Target. And so we have pretty much all those combination of products in a, in a, in a, a large retail brick-and-mortar building, and everything is sold typically around half of retail, and it's all brand-new merchandise. One of the things that you talked about with the Melt You interns was the idea of brand loyalty being harder and harder to come by with this generation. As someone who started multiple businesses, is starting a new one right now as we speak, how do you overcome that in today's day and age? Well, I'm just taking what the economy and what the world has given me. And online sales have created 
billions and billions of dollars worth of overages and products. And so it creates the ability to get product. And then secondly, these millennials and these young people are very tech savvy. It drives and runs their life, which is we can argue whether that's good or bad, but it's the truth is the truth. And so they're savvy and they understand what they want, when they want to get it. They know how to get it at a better price. And so what I'm doing is just taking and and aligning myself as exactly would fit with the way they want to they want to consume goods. And I'm giving them that in a brick and mortar store in front of them at really deeply discounted prices. You talked about the benefits of uh, mentorship to our students at Mellon University, and you had a really great story about Truett Cathy, who's the founder of Chick-fil-A, and how he didn't know you from Adam, but he helped you out. That's right. I, I, again, I just cold called him and, and got in to see him, and, and I, I'm somebody that believes that if you, anybody, no matter who you are, if you want to go talk to somebody, there's really no reason why you shouldn't be able to go do that. And so... I went and just called him and, and developed a relationship with him and presented myself in a very professional manner when I met him and just told him my story and was very sincere and honest and told him what we were having success with at the time and what my fears were and, and how, you know, what he thought about my plan and what he thought about my food. He ate it and tried it. And, and from that, you know, he's just a man with a huge heart and a very giving heart. And he brought me into his world and, and offered to help me financially, which we ultimately did not do. Uh, and then he offered to help me with people and human resources um, and human capital, which was really the most important thing. And so those relationships were, were a part of many critical decisions that I made um, that really formulated the model that Zoe still util- utilizes today. Uh, and, and that is important. I mean, you just have to not be scared to go out there and to talk to somebody and to feel like you can pick the phone up and why shouldn't he have talked to me, even though he didn't know me, but why not? That's kind of the way I feel. When you talked about starting Zoe's, a lot of the, the interns, their faces lit up. Someone talked about the chocolate cake and how much they love that. Because you, you build food brands, people have a relationship with those and they love those. And I guess the question I would ask for you is when you then move on from those brands, you start them, you go on to your next thing. What's it like then seeing how that evolves from what you started, but, but you're no longer the one that's guiding that ship? It's a very painful process, <laughs> to be honest with you. It's... You know, you start something and it's your baby. Mm-hmm. You know, we birthed that thing and we set up a model and we set up a, a business that was capable of growing on a national level and really strong brand loyalty, um, lots of frequency of people eating the, eating the food. And when that is all of a sudden taken and changed, it's very difficult process to go through. Um, you know, obviously if somebody, when you start something, you're very critical, just like you'd be with your children, you're critical of your own kids. You think you know them better than anybody else. And so when things like that happen, you have to just kind of, you know, sometimes you shake your head and, 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 and dissatisfaction. And sometimes you're, you know, you know, excitingly smiling and, and going, wow, that's great. But, um, it's not a very easy process, especially when it goes bad. Some people are more comfortable working for someone. Others are more comfortable calling the shots, being the boss, being the entrepreneur. What do you think is that difference? You know, I think there's just a level of discomfort and the unknown for certain people. Uh, I just have the ability to pallet risk um, and deal with risk. And it's something that I'm just born with. I have a very thick skin. It, no matter how bad a situation gets or uh, uh, seems or it feels like it's it's terminal and it's just nothing but you know negativity will come out of it. I'm 
able to persevere and to dig deep and to figure out some kind of solution and where most people just can't handle that type of pressure. It's just not the way they want to live. And it's a very, uh, it can be a very uncomfortable uh, position to be in. It's, it's not conducive to very happy home life when you have to live that way. And so that is, um, it's different and it's very difficult. And I think that's what separates why there's not, you know, everybody's not an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Everybody can't go take that risk. They can't just, I always felt like if I failed, I could just go do it again. You know, I wasn't worried about it. You know, I figured I'm going to land on my feet somehow and I can just make it work. And I said with Zoe's when I started, I was like, if it failed, I'd be the last person working in the store and I'd serve the last sandwich until they locked me out of the, until they locked me out of it. You were telling a story about Zoe's and, and obviously when you sold Zoe's, it's clear that, that you've done very well. You've made a lot of money. I think a lot of people would ask, why? Why do you keep going? What is it that drives you to go start a new business from the ground up when you could easily go sit on the beach somewhere and relax and do whatever you want? I have expensive habits. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, uh, you know, this just kind of, I was just naturally drawn to this. I, I just gotten really tired of the food business. The industry is uh, not conducive right now for a lot of success in our industry. And it's going to be very, very tough for the for a foreseeable future. And so I knew in the last year or so that I was not going to ever have the success that we have with Zoe's again in my, and probably in my lifetime. Uh, I just felt like that, you know, we hit it at the right time. And so if I'm not going to be the best and be really kind of moving and shaking and be somebody known in the industry that I'm in as somebody that's, that's doing great things, it's just time to do something different. Uh, I'm just not somebody for mediocrity. And I felt like what I was doing and the brands that I, that I've been growing and the positioning in the, in the market and what's out there and the availability of, of success, um, was going to be pretty mediocre. And, and at that point in time, I said, I need to do something different. And then when I saw this business, um, it was, I had no intentions of ever starting and doing something like this, but I was naturally drawn to it when I saw it. And the more I saw it, the more I got to see it, the more enamored I got with it. And it just aligned perfectly with my skill set and what I was passionate about. And it was kind of like, I look at it like kind of flying an airplane. Either you see this kind of business, like when you first fly an airplane, you either really want to go do it and learn and, and get that done as quick as you can, or you want to have nothing to do with it. It's weird or, and that kind of thing. And so when I saw this business, I was enamored by it and it just aligned perfectly with how, how I consume products, um, where my mindset is, the, the, the pace of the business. And I just, I just couldn't say no. And that's kind of ended up where I am today. Final thing for you, you told a story at the very end of your, your talk with the students about not knowing what you can truly be in life until you push yourself beyond the physical and mental limitations that, that are kind of controlling you. And, and you said for you, that was really through playing football and you continue to do that through cycling, through sports. Why is that important? And what do you think people can learn from that? You know, people don't understand what their potential is in life a lot of times. And so, for example, you could take everybody in this room that we had in here, we could all go get on gym clothes and go outside and, and you could go get them to go do some, do some exercise. And some are going to be amazing. And, and then there's going to be some that are just really, they, they're not going to make it a hundred yards. And, but those people don't understand really what their potential is, that they can do certain things that they're not comfortable with. It hurts them. And that they learn how to fight through that and persevere through that. And so I think what happens is sports is the easiest analogy because it's the one thing that you do that physically you can be you can be put to task. I mean, same thing that what happens in the military. Mm-hmm. You go to the military, what do they do? They break you down. They go, they're gonna they're gonna make you suffer and hurt 
so far beyond because when it comes down to it, your life and other people's lives depend on it. They need to know that you're not going to quit, right? right. That you can you can deal with some pain. And so the human being, when it comes to being successful in school or being in the workplace, uh, they can't ever reach their potential until they've been pushed to a point to where when things get tough and get hard, um, they're not going to quit mm-hmm. and that they get stronger and they understand that there's a process to go through. And so especially being an entrepreneur, I mean, that's what allowed me to make it with Zoe's. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that there was if there are 100 people have been in my shoes um, if they hadn't had the type of personality or the perseverance that I had and the training that I had through sports and those other things, I think probably 98% of them would have failed. And it's not meaning that I'm better than anybody else. I'm just saying that I was programmed by the work that I'd done in my life to prepare myself for that time when it got really, really tough. When I was at home laying in bed every night, questioning every decision that I'd ever made and how I ended up where I was that night and being upset about it to waking up the next day and going, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get this done. Mm-hmm. I'm not quitting. It's something, and that's just something that has to come from within. But I think, you know, people need to be pushed. And, and I think employers need to push people. And, you know, like I've got these people tonight, they're going to work till whatever. If we're there at four o'clock the next three nights in a row and they have to go home for an hour, that's what they're going to do. Or they can quit, but I'm going to be there. And, you know, in today's, in today's world, I mean, you know, I remember, you know, guys that have started companies that have gone public in the past in the last 20 years. And I remember people working, you know, seven days a week. And I think that people today think they get a job and you're going to show up at eight o'clock and you're going to leave at five. And that's just not the way the world works. If you want to be successful, sometimes it just takes more time. I certainly wouldn't expect somebody to have that for the rest of their life and work for me. And that's what they're doing every day. <clears throat> but there are times that you have to make sacrifices and there's just no time except we worked yesterday. It was Sunday. We worked. Well, I think Mark and I are both going to go run a marathon now. We've got to work a little harder after this. But thank you so much. Yeah, for- my pleasure. It wasn't enough for Captain Leonard Reed to simply achieve great levels of success in her career with the Coca-Cola company. She wanted to dig deeper to find out what it was that allowed her and her teams to win consistently. This exploration led her to ultimately give a TED Talk on the topic of harnessing the power of people and how to match the right types of skills and personalities together to get the best results. Shortly after delivering that same TED Talk to the students of Belt University, Mark and I spoke to her about her expertise on the subject and the inspiration to get into motivational speaking. But before delving into that, she began by sharing the challenge she gave herself at the start of her professional career. I started my career as an art director in Manhattan. I majored in graphic and industrial design. And um, a life change asked me to move to Atlanta. And there I joined the Coca-Cola company where I worked for about 20 years. Um, I have always had an interest and a desire and a curiosity to learn. And so that was my primary motivator. So while at Coke, I was part of the global division, the North America bottle can division, and the food services division, and held many different and varying roles within the marketing organization. You mentioned in, in your talk with the interns that when you were in New York, you said, I'm going to give myself five years to make it as a designer. And... That's probably what a lot of people do and not a lot of people succeed. How are you able to pull that off? And how important is it to kind of set parameters for yourself like that as you go through your career? For me, um, and, and I always say everybody's different. For me personally, I didn't have a lot of money. I had student loan debt and I wanted to be able to live a decent lifestyle, which is not always easy in New York. And so I understood that, um, 
you know, I needed to make money and that I could in the design world, but would I? Um, as I said in the meeting, when I first graduated from school, I was terrified because I really, really, really had a burning desire to be a designer, but I was not coming out of one of the top schools. I did not have a placement agency. I didn't have any of those things. Um, once I started slowly breaking into it, I got more of a comfort level. And then about five years into my career, I was actually designing cosmetic packaging for some of the top cosmetic companies in the world and felt confident in the decision I had made. And you gave a fascinating presentation about left brain and right brain people and how everybody is needed. And you said that's, you kind of realized that early on because your father was a professor, your mom was an opera singer, and they had kind of different personalities. Yeah, um, it, it was an interesting upbringing. Um, and, and it was wonderful from the perspective of I got to see so many different in, uh, ways of thinking as a child. Uh, my father has a PhD in economics and is about as introverted as you can get. Um, and my mother was an opera singer and extremely extroverted. And so when I started leading teams of people, it, 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 there was a familiarity to it for me. And I started understanding and realizing this is what I had seen in my parents. The TED Talk you gave today was fascinating, and, and clearly it's something you've taken a lot of pride in. Where did the inspiration come from to develop a TED Talk, to pitch a TED Talk, and ultimately to have that distinction, which means a lot in today's day and age? So when I was on an innovation think tank, I had run a, a project that was um, very high level. And coming out of the project, one of the VPs said to me, I cannot have you be the only person at Coke who knows how to do this. I need you to turn over all the files to person X who will do the next project. And I sat there and I thought to myself, this VP walked hand in hand with me through this process. How could they possibly think that it was about the files? And so I thought about it and I thought about it and I started developing ideas around the people um, aspects of what had happened and got permission from Coke to write a book. And I called the book The Duality of Innovation. And in the book, I identify what I call hardware and software. So the hardware were the files that she was asking me to turn over. The software was the people management aspect of it. And so I had a publisher and a contract, and then the economy tanked, and the whole thing fell apart. When I retired from Coke, I thought about revisiting the book now that I had more time to work on it and realized that it really needed to be rewritten. And quite honestly, the publishing experience was not fun. And so I thought about it and I thought, how could I disseminate this information and decided to try to do a TED Talk? Um, and Kennesaw State University in Georgia was holding a TED Talk and I auditioned and became part of their team. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. You talk, you talk about harnessing the power of people. Why don't you just kind of give us a brief uh, glimpse into what a left brain person is like and what a right brain person is like? So from a very high level, um, what I call methodical thinkers are left brain dominant. Their thinking tends to be sequential, which means A is followed by B is followed by C. They love process because they're motivated by being able to predict an outcome with precision. And for the most part, they're introverts and introverts speak in conclusion. Now the creative folks are right brain dominant they um, have a tendency of thinking spatially or what's called in pictures. They're motivated by being able to come up with new and unique thinking or ideas, and they communicate in theory. 
So when you look at it from that perspective, these two groups are truly polar opposites. But when you can get them understanding each other and when you can get them understanding how to work together in a knowledge economy, I don't, I don't think anything is more powerful. I really don't. You gave an example of when you really needed both sides of that brain on a team to help solve a logistical problem with a big project you're working on. Can you, can you tell us about that in terms of the uh, logistics of shipping and, and where that came into play? <laughs> so uh, I was working on a big project and parts. Uh, there were some parts that had to be custom manufactured in Germany. And we had built in redundancies on the project and passed our go, no-go date where we were supposed to be manufacturing in the United States. And two weeks past that go, no-go date, the engineers came to me and told me the manufacturing test failed. So we were now two weeks behind schedule. And so I met independently with the engineers, and I asked them how they were getting these parts in from Germany. And they looked at me, and they said, well, we FedEx them. And I said, I literally started screaming in the room and said, are you out of your minds? And they all looked at me like I was crazy, and I said, they can get held up in customs for two months. You cannot, cannot keep this type of information to yourself. You need the team to help you when these things come up. It's not going to be something big that shoots us in the foot. It's going to be something little. And luckily, we were able to stop the FedEx, and we literally sent the company jet over to Germany, picked up the parts, and brought them back to Atlanta. When you were putting together teams, if you had a highly creative project, would you try to stack your team with more right brain people? Or if you had a very technical, engineering-type dominated project, would you put more left brain people in there? So for me personally, um, with the work that I've done and the work that I've seen, I feel very strongly that a whole brain is always needed. And one of the things I talk about in my talk is, um, if you think about it, from the beginning, methodical thinkers are needed because as much as creative folks don't want you to know this, they hate coming to conclusions. And you need the methodical people there to pull them along. But then equally, methodical thinkers have blind spots. And you need the creative thinkers towards the end of the project as well to help them with issues as they come up. I think the shipping was a perfect example of the methodical thinkers being so focused on getting the manufacturing completed that they weren't thinking through the steps. So even in a project that's highly creative, I still think I still feel very strongly you need a whole brain. Now, I guess you could argue that you could have more creatives up front and more technical people towards the back end of the project, but you do need both the entire way through. And I think that this is true for corporations, too, and corporate structures. Corporations that tend to be highly creative will um, oftentimes not be able to fully function as a business unless they have a very strong business team working with them. Um, it's the typical, you know, they're a creative person. They don't know how to do that kind of stuff. And then equally, um, engineering and uh, firms or highly uh, um, methodical firms or analytical firms, if they don't have enough creative people there, they'll just continue down their rabbit holes. Most creative people need an outlet all the time. Otherwise, they tend to go crazy. So I'm curious, outside of the TED Talk, in retirement, what else have you found to, to feed that part of your brain? So um, I did go back to Coke for a short while as a, a contractor, and that was great. I really love the experience. But mostly, I just try to stay busy. I, I, it's going to sound corny, but I like knit, and I paint, and <laughs> I sew, and I do all these like things. And I would love to go back to work, and I, and I still continue to do consulting work and that kind of stuff. I love working. I always did. I always loved what I did. And I guess in that respect, I'm so blessed. 
you told the students that uh, when you were in college, you gave yourself five years to be able to take care of yourself financially. What kind of advice would you give to the students at Mellon University who are trying to get that first job, trying to get their foot in the door? For me personally, my first job was with a design studio in Manhattan that had 30 designers in a bullpen. And I was a gopher. And I graduated magna cum laude, <laughs> and I was a gopher. Um, and, but I didn't care. I looked at it as my foray, my entry. Don't be afraid to take something that may not be perfect as your first job. It, it's not going to last forever. You know, have, try to have a broader vision of your career and do what it takes. That first job is always the hardest job to get. Then after that, create a reputation for yourself and it'll all be okay from there. You also said specifically the most important advice you could give was to never stop learning because you never know when something you learn that's not related to what you're doing at the moment could be very relevant to something in the future. And that's very true. I gave the example in the talk of um, when I worked at Revlon, I did what they called it at that time, visual merchandising, which we now call point of sale. And my position at Coke, I was working as a, a brand manager, and that position was eliminated. And my portfolio from Revlon 22 years later saved my job at Coke. And I wound up becoming um, the shopper messaging lead for the Coke team. So you just never know. You That's never right. know. And I, I could never in a million years have predicted that when I was at Revlon. I never in a million years could have predicted I would be in Atlanta working for Coke. You just, life's a journey and your career is a journey. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing the insights from your career. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And you guys run such an amazing program here. I hope all the students really appreciate the effort and time that you put into it. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. We're now available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud, so be sure to subscribe on the app of your choice and please leave review to help us continue to grow. Until next week, I'm Adam Schick. Thanks for joining us for The Struggle is Real, presented by Melton.